And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today from Sports Illustrated, a first-time guest, which I cannot believe it has been this long and we have not had him on the show before, Connor Orr. Connor, thank you very much for taking the time to do this today. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. So we, yesterday on the show, talked with Sando about some of the firings that have happened already and the carousel, the coaching carousel starting to spin in the NFL. And what I wanted to do kind of as a second entry after that was talk about the candidates, the guys that are going to be in the running for some of these jobs. And you have done such a great job over the last few years keeping tabs on this. I almost feel like you're on the coaching beat year round. You have a list that comes out before the season every year that kind of looks at who the coaching candidates could be in the upcoming cycle after the season was over. I think right after Christmas, right before the new year, you did a reprisal of that list with a lot of the names that we've heard over the last 24 hours or so. And I know you do a lot of kind of grinding intentional work on this to keep tabs on who those names might be. So I thought that you were kind of the perfect guy to have this discussion with. Well, I'm, I'm honored. I, I like that. Uh, it, it's a very weird sub niche of the NFL world that I <laughs> somehow found myself kind of trying to make a, a mark on. So it's a, I, I can talk for hours about head coaching philosophy, which is a very weird thing to be able to, to talk about. So I do want to talk about that first. We're going to get into the individual candidates. We're going to kind of run through these guys, a lot of whom have already been requested for some of these jobs. You guys know a lot of the names. You know, Connor's written about a lot of these guys. A lot of these people, I think just by virtue of where they were at in their careers and how long I've been around or people I've had conversations with as well, which is kind of the first time last year, this year that that's consistently happening, which I think allows us to talk about these guys with a little bit more knowledge and actual background. But I want to start on a broader level because you wrote something about Thomas Brown, who is the Rams assistant head coach and tight ends coach a couple weeks ago about where teams are looking for these candidates and how these lists get pared down and how these candidate pools start to emerge. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think the league gets right about where it looks for its head coaching candidates? And what do you think the league gets wrong about where it looks for its head coaching candidates? Um, I think they don't get a whole lot right, right? Which is why we have all this turnover <laughs> and why there's enough of an interest in a yearly head coaching list that I'm able to do this, right? And um, I, I really first got interested in this. I used to cover the Jets as a beat writer for the Star-Ledger. And I remember getting really immersed in the search firm world and kind of, you know, these guys are collecting two hundred and fifty to $300,000 from owners per search to find uh, them a head coach. And a lot of the reasoning that I would get back then was, oh, we picked this guy because he was part of a winning culture. Like back back in 2010, it was like, if you could hire a Packers assistant, great. That's all you need to do. And then infinite Super Bowls for you. Uh, here's my half a million dollar commission. Thank you. And it was just like, 
this is all they're doing. Like This is like, you know, and yes, it, there is a little bit more work involved there. Sure. But it's like, I, I feel like they're not ever identifying true feats of good coaching. And I had a really good conversation about this with a coach who uh, recently got out of the league a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, nobody realizes and nobody praises the fact that like, you know, and he wasn't on our final list of candidates, but LaFleur in New York, right? This guy could design an offense that makes himself look better, or he could have run an offense that won them seven games this year, right? You know, and he could have bolstered himself as a candidate and the Jets would have been three and 13 or three and 14, or they could have won seven games. And I feel like Mike Kafka is the same way where sometimes it's not beautiful, but these are real feats of ingenuity. And then we can get on to a much larger discourse about how you measure emotional intelligence, all these little moments, how you look for it, how you ask about it. And I think that's the stuff that they get wrong because, you know, this is still such a presentation business, right? Where it's like, here, we got the guy from the good team. Uh, there you go. You know, and, and that's what it's been for years. Looking at the last few years, I think that there are a couple archetypes that are pretty notable. Matt Nagy is kind of one from the exact cut from the cloth of what we're talking about here, where he was the Chiefs offensive coordinator when the Chiefs were very successful. And that's where he came from. And I think that we see a lot of that over the years. And I think we've seen a lot of those guys stumble when given head coaching jobs. But there are also guys like Joe Judge who were supposed to be the opposite of that, right? Where you have this guy who was the CEO type head coach. He was a special teams coordinator. Man, shouldn't more special teams coordinators get head coaching jobs because of their oversight of the entire roster and what the bones of that job looks like? And then he fails. So even if you're plucking from different background types, I think we still have stories of success and failure on both sides. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the through line of some of the recent success, success stories that we've seen from those guys over the last couple of years that have hit as head coaches? I think it's emotional intelligence. And one of the things that I always think about, I don't know about your um, uh, athletic background, Robert, but I was a very poor uh, high school football player, extremely mediocre, uh, uh, undersized offensive lineman. And what I, I, I love in a similar boat. Okay. All right. Good, good. So you'll understand what I'm talking about. And so I was not the kind of person that had to be paid attention to by the head coach, right? I was, he, high school football practice was babysitting, you know, for my parents, right? And so I I always made it a point to notice, like, you know, my interaction with the head coach was the most important part of my week. Like if he said something to me, that blew my mind. And so when I talk to a lot of coaches now, I, I ask them that question, like, you know, you know, if you're talking to, you know, the third or fourth cornerback on the roster and you see him in the hallway, like, what are you saying to that guy in the middle of the week on a Wednesday? Because what you're saying to that guy is the most important thing that will happen to him in the next, you know, whatever it is, 72 hours of his life. And so it's the coaches who get that and who understand that and who don't just say they have a true open door policy, but legitimately have a real open door policy. And, you know, there are coaches that I talked to this year, some of the minutia that they will involve themselves in is mind blowing to prove that I care about you. Right. And I think that that is what's that. Give me an example. So, um, you know, one head coach was saying like, we fought for, you know, two hours about a 15 minute change in the curfew. Right. 
And like, this is in the middle of the week. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on, but this is important enough to you that you came into my office to have this conversation with me. And so I'm going to have it with you and not in a dismissive way. It's like, okay, let me lock in because this is clearly a big deal to you. And, you know, it's just all these miniature interactions that build up over the course of a season. And then in crunch time, it's like, okay, this guy is someone that I would like to put my body and career on the line for, or this guy is definitely not a person that I care to put my body and career on the line for. I think the biggest, the most drastic difference, talking about almost exactly that, is what's happened in Minnesota over the last year. Mike Zimmer is a fantastic defensive coach, and he was a fantastic defensive coach for a long time and deserved his shot as a head coach, and he was successful. Those teams were successful. But when you talk to people there, I think there's a pretty stark difference between what it's like to be in the halls of that building with Mike Zimmer there and with Kevin O'Connell there. And when people are looking to steal from what the Rams were and what the Rams were doing, that general feel of you can approach the head coach in the hallway. This is a collaborative process. The communication here goes both ways. I want your ideas. I want you to feel like you have ownership over this. That approach, I think, is becoming more and more prevalent throughout the league with some of these younger coaches. You and I have talked about this a little bit off the show. Holistic is the word that you use, and I think it's a very good word, where you're not just this X's and O's schemer. It's not just this top-down authoritarian viewpoint of how this all works. It's a holistic approach to how you're coaching the building, how you're coaching individual players, and the ownership that they have in what you're trying to accomplish. I think there are a couple of recent examples of that and what's worked. What's going on in Minnesota right now with Kevin O'Connell is one of them. What's going on in Miami with Mike McDaniel is another. You know, talking to Frank Smith, their offensive coordinator recently, just about their mindset there and kind of how they approach discussions with players and you know, trying to explain to them, like, all right, this is the intention behind what we're doing. This is exactly what we're trying to accomplish on this play, inciting their input on what that might look like. That line of communication both ways, it may seem simple and it may seem obvious, but I don't think that's always been the way that a lot of coaches in the NFL operate. Frank is a perfect example. He um, he was the tight ends coach in Las Vegas when Darren Waller was coming back into the NFL following you know uh, uh, his issues with substance abuse. And Frank actually traveled to where Darren is from, met with his parents and was like, hey, you know, I just need to know how, you know, what can I do to help him? Like, what what was he like growing up? What kind of person is he? What kind of human being is he? And, you know, that really struck me because I remember, gosh, this is, you know, five, six, seven years ago. I remember talking to a head coach who knew the writing was on the wall and he was on his way out. It was going to be a couple more weeks. And he ended up losing his job a few weeks after we talked. And he said, you know, my one big regret, and he's like, and I started it a couple weeks ago, but it's too late. He's like, I spent too much time in my area of expertise and not enough time in meetings with everybody in uh, on the roster. And, and, you know, now you hear, I mean, it it is day one stuff. When you're talking to prospective head coaching candidates, what are you going to do? I'm going to have everybody on the team over for dinner. I'm going to have everybody on the team over for meetings. I'm going to have everybody out at hockey, bowling, paintball, and, you know, whatever it is, you know, it, this isn't just, you know, this isn't just sort of made for media stuff. This is, there, there's, there's something real that's happening here. And I think that this drive to understand people 
as human beings and not just little chess pieces that we smash together is is the future of the NFL. I and there's, you know, and it sounds stupid but it's like, yeah, I mean, relating to other people is a big deal, you know. Broadening your scope away from your side of the ball, I think, is going to be a consistent theme as we're talking about some of these guys, because two of the biggest success stories over the last couple of years being in Philadelphia and with the Giants, Nick Sirianni and Brian Dable both choosing not to call offensive plays for their teams and the success they've had, I think partially as a result of that. I think coaches around the league and owners around the league and people orchestrating these searches would be well served to look at that as an example. A hundred percent. And the ability, it's not just right. It's not just delegating, but it's, it's that recognition of that ego, right. And saying like, I don't need to call the plays in order to be the guy. Like my strength is in poking my head in every room, making sure that I'm seen and heard, like I'm comfortable in that role because some guys are not comfortable in that role. And that is a common thread among coaches who don't succeed, right? You hear them buried in the quarterback meetings, they emerge and they see, you know, their first defensive player on Friday. And that's really just not the way that you can deal with day-to-day life in the NFL. Obviously, there are examples in the other direction, right? Like Kyle Shanahan is Kyle Shanahan. Sure. But I think that holding that up as the glowing example of what every team needs is a mistake I have made in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that as more time has passed and as we've gotten more examples of guys succeeding in different ways, I've become more open-minded about that. I think the last couple of years have only served to accentuate that. You mentioning that the I don't need to call the ego part of this and guys that aren't obsessed with calling plays. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Todd Monken a few years ago, who is now obviously thriving in Georgia. We just saw what he did last night to TCU. And he and I were talking about him going to Cleveland in 2019. And he was not the offensive play caller there. And it was after he had called plays for the last year in Tampa when they were very successful with Ryan Fitzpatrick. And he was just like, I don't know. It's not that important to me to call plays. I've I've called plays on teams that are like four and 12. That's (laughs) not that fun. And guys, I think that aren't so precious about it. I think that's a healthy attitude that ultimately leads to success in different areas down the road. You're right. And, you know, I'll start by, you know, you made a great point about Kyle Shannon, but what's really smart about Kyle Shannon is look who he pairs himself with all the time. He pairs himself with somebody who can handle the emotional day to day. He had Robert Sala, right, who was sort of the culture creation guy. He has D'Amico Ryans, who is the culture creation guy. He knows where his strengths and his weaknesses lie, and he knows how to supplement that, which I think is really smart. So we're in this period of time where I think a lot of the money is made and you know by money i just mean kind of this happiness equity that builds up within a team in the way that a coach you don't have to call plays but what you have to do is you have to accept ideas from all sides right and yes. so perfect example um with the mmqb we went down to philly uh, after they beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, and it was Doug Peterson, and it was Mike Groh, and it was Frank Reich, and they told us how they came up with the game-winning touchdown, where this came from, spider webs to the very beginning. And every single person had a hand in that idea to the point where it wasn't just one guy that was able to meet with us. There was four guys and it was like, well, you know, Mike is in charge of red zone and Frank is in charge of motion concepts and Doug is in charge of this. And so we all met, we all had eight things on a list and we all put it together and nobody was a jerk about it and said we were going to change it. And we ran this play exactly the way we wanted to run it. And 
there are still, I would say it's about 50-50. Half of the time you are going to a coach and you're presenting an idea in, in buildings and it's being accepted. And half the time you're going to a coach and you're saying, hey, I found this. And then it just gets thrown behind you um, into the recycling bin. And so where are you on that spectrum as a head coach and what kind of what are you showing to your subordinates in those moments, right? That like, hey, even if you're not calling the plays, you're kind of calling the plays because you came up with that idea. And that's where the CEO aspects of this and being a good manager come in, because I think it's about understanding how do I make sure that I'm soliciting these ideas, making sure the stupid ones don't get in, but (laughs) still incentivizing people to keep coming with those ideas, even if I'm not using every single one of them. That's why this job is hard. And that's why this job is different than being a coordinator. I mean, that's just one example of a hundred of how the gigs are different. And I think that that's why so many of these coaches fail is that they're hired on the basis usually of their successes in another role. And I think that's why it's lost in translation so often. So it's fascinating. I've always been really interested in it, and I know that you are as well, considering how much work you tend to do on it every single year. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just fun. It's a, it's a blind spot that I feel like isn't covered. And I used to do the, you know, when, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would used to do the just like, oh, here are the 10 best coordinators. They're going to be the best head coaches. And then it's the definition of insanity, right? When that list sucks every year, you're like, why, (laughs) you know, why does it keep sucking? And so you try to dig a little bit deeper, you know? The last thing I wanted to say that the Philly thing is an interesting example, because based on what I heard after Frank Reich left is that there were too many voices Mm -hmm. in those rooms and that they Mm -hmm. struggled to distill those into kind of one singular offensive vision. So it can go the other way too. And that's why you need a strong personality at the top of that to make sure you're kind of calling those ideas in the right way to make sure it's not going off the rails. It is. I mean, gosh, like they say CEO, but like, I imagine that uh, whatever that that CEO sl- uh, golf time project that they did before, like I imagine being a CEO is actually easier than being an NFL head coach, like a fi- <laughs> Fortune 500 CEO, because like you said, just everything that you do matters to someone in such a significant way. There's so many people just like screaming at you every day and mad at you. And, you know, I, I, I can't stand it when like one of my kids is mad at me. Like imagine having like, 54 of those people in the building at once and you have to figure out how to make everybody happy and on the same page i'm not responsible for anyone else and my life is frustrating (laughs) enough so i don't even get me started looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, let's start running down this list. I want to start with someone that you wrote 
a big piece about a couple weeks ago, and that's Shane Steichen, who is the Eagles offensive coordinator. I'm going to run through a couple just biographical details of all these guys. Steichen is 37 years old, played college quarterback at UNLV, came into the league with the Chargers in 2011. Was with the Norv Turner staff originally, then worked under Frank Reich after one year in Cleveland and Ken Wisenhunt, both as a quality control coach and a quarterbacks coach. He was then the Chargers offense coordinator for one year during Justin Herbert's rookie year and then came over to Philly as the offensive coordinator. He worked with Sirianni when they were both with the Chargers. So that's how that connection gets made. He's been requested by the Texans, the Colts, and the Panthers. So three of the, I think, five teams to have head coaching openings right now. So it is going to be a busy couple weeks for Shane Steichen here. When you wrote about him, when you talked to people about him, what was kind of your biggest overarching takeaway from those conversations that you had? Well, I think, you know, Philip Rivers and I had a long conversation about Shane. And what I think is unique is that, and, you know, you throw around like quarterback whisper and, you know, that is sort of a vague term that, you know, some people apply to certain people and not all people and it gets complicated and and messy. But I think when Philip was talking about it's like, yeah, we're going to, before I even ask you to do it, you're removing plays from the play sheet that you know, based on me and how I throw a football, which is very weird, um, <laughs> that there are certain throws that I'm not going to like to make in certain situations. Or like um, even now, right, um, Shane and Philip will talk almost every Monday after Eagles games, and they will run through the entire thing before they've been able to see the film. And Shane has that that weird ability. And, you know, I don't want to if you want to call it McVeigh Ian or whatever. I mean, he's not the only person in the world with a photographic memory, but just this ability to live the moments like players see them and kind of process that understanding in real time. So it's like uh, it's not that you don't un- you can understand quicker and easier why something is not working. Um, and <clears throat> I think one of the big advantages of him from a schematic standpoint is started on the defensive side of the ball. And um, one thing that I heard about him, which was interesting from someone who worked with him was that, you know, he will process a lot of his game planning um, via defensive people. And so, Hey, this is what I want to run, but how would this piss you off uh, as a defensive coordinator? And if it doesn't, what can I do to piss you off even more? And so everything that he does kind of gets reverse engineered through the most complicated scenario for the defense. And that's why you're seeing, I mean, you know, the Eagles starting midway through last year. I mean, they could look like Wake Forest one week. They could look like the Ravens one week. And you're just like, what is happening? And that's really terrible for a defense. And I think from pure, you know, purely a play caller standpoint, I don't think there's anybody that's necessarily close to him in, in this field for, for this year. I think every coach, especially on offense, is going to come into these interviews and say, I'm going to build a system around the strengths of my players. We're going to t- t- tap in and tune into what they do well. I don't know if a lot of them actually mean it. <laughs> and I don't know if a lot of them actually have tangible examples of how that's worked for them. And if you look at the last three years of what Shane Steichen's offenses have looked like, he has succeeded with Justin Herbert and Jalen Hurts as one version of Jalen Hurts and Jalen Hurts as another version of Jalen Hurts. They came into that 2021 season. That offense and what they eventually ran, those guys don't have backgrounds in that. That's not where Shane Steichen and Nick Sirianni come from. They intentionally sought out things that the Ravens did 
and things that co- certain colleges did and said, all right, how can we implement this to make sure that we're putting our guys in the best positions to succeed? And then they tweaked it midway through the season and ultimately made the playoffs. It's incredible. And then the evolution that they made from last year to this year. So there is so much actual evidence for him being able to do that. I'm really interested in the relationship between Shane and Philip Rivers because it's not surprising at all to me that they're very close and that they have a good relationship because they sound the same. <laughs> I, when, when you talk to both of them, they have this incredible weird quirk where they'll be talking about something and they'll be talking at a normal pace with a normal tone like a human being would. And as they start to get into a certain play, the volume of their voice will just grow and grow and they'll be screaming <laughs> by the end of the sentence. And they both independently do this. And it's it's hilarious. Philip obviously does it with his twang, but yes. their their personalities are very similar in that way where they have a real enthusiasm and energy that comes with them. And what I've said about Shane in the past is that to me he looks and sounds like Dak Shepard. Like that that <laughs> He, they 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 look similar. They have like a very similar energy about them, and he has that sort of enthusiasm. And the the other thing that to me is really striking about him is that he doesn't make this stuff overly complicated. And in your piece, you had a quote from Philip that I thought was great. And they were going over what those games, one of those games, looked like. And Philip says, "Well, yeah, you did this and this and this." And Shane said, "Well, yeah, because the defense did this and that." He is just so in tune with, well, if they're going to do this, I'm just going to do that. And he's not trying to overly complicate it. He's trying to take the path of least resistance, either with the way the offense is orchestrated or the way he's calling a game. And I think that not outsmarting yourself in those ways is an underrated value as a coach. It's huge. And to not be bound by traditional rules, which I think is what Philip loves so much about him is like, and we saw this this year, right? Philly has used man-beating concepts to defeat zone coverage multiple times to score long touchdowns. And so it just, it doesn't matter because it's not about, well, hey, this is the structure that we're and and these are the umbrella of plays that we use against this. It's like, hey, that cornerback sucks and I really don't care. And so we're just going to do this because it's a comfortable throw for you and it's a play that we can run no matter what and ready, break, let's do it. And I think that that attitude. And I think it all came back to he was so moved by his own high school experience, right? Of this idea that someone could see something in a defense and call play for you that would deliver this moment in your life that you're never going to forget. And, you know, people talk about, you know, he talks about a JV touchdown pass that he threw that he still remembers, (laughs) right? And so his entire like goal in life is to pass that on to somebody else. And it's just so it's, it's interesting to be around and to hear about somebody who's got that, that fluid connection with just that, that moment and that idea. And it's just like, I mean, you hear people say like, he's all football air quotes, but there are real living and breathing examples of that. And I feel like he's one of those people that would just blow away an interview. Like I just, I think that's, that's one of those candidates that I feel like that that one's going to be pretty open and shut. I mean, it's, it, what I heard was back in, I mean, back in the fall, we we're talking about there was people commissioning kind of work to be done on him as a head coach. So I, I know that there he's high up on, on a lot of people's lists. And some of this is kind of higher level, like philosophical stuff. I, I don't think it's all like vibes with him either. The no. Philly, Philly, what is understated about them, I think that people remember you know, the planting the the tree press conference and the stuff that Nick Sirianni did early on. You've written about this and my understanding is the same is that 
They're incredibly regimented. I mean, they're incredibly organized. There's a lot of intentionality behind the way they structure days. I don't know if you've heard this, but you're talking about uh, him seeking out the opinions of defensive coaches. I don't know how prevalent this is, but I know on those Colt staffs and now in Philly, they do a self-scout after the season where coaches on the other side of the ball will do a self-scout of the offense or defense. So like the defensive coaches will do a scout of the offense. And they have that kind of exchange of ideas, and this is what was would have been hard for us. So just stuff like that that's built into the structure of how they coach, I think that's an underrated reason that the Eagles have been successful as well. It's huge. And we mentioned ego, right? And it's being able to accept those ideas and not fall asleep during that meeting and say, I'm the shit and walk out of there and, you know, (laughs) and keep your playbook. I mean, you and I have been through enough edits in our lives, Robert, to know that like, you know, there are some days where you take them and there are some days that you don't, but the really good ones are constantly taking them, you know, um, and, and, and trying to get better. And so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, again, I think if you love something as much as we love what we do or he loves what he does, it's like, you know, that that is such an integral part of your process and you can see it, right? There are coaches who come up with new ideas every week and every season and there are coaches who don't. I mean, plain and simple. His counterpart on the defensive side of the ball is also getting plenty of interviews this week. Jonathan Gannon already been requested by I think just the Texans, but I'm sure there will be more of them. He was a hot candidate last year. I think the Texans uh Wanted to pursue him as a head coach last season. 40 years old. Spent three years with Mike Zimmer in Minnesota as a defensive backs coach before going to Indy with Matt Eberflus and Frank Reich for three seasons. Has been the Eagles defensive coordinator over the last couple of years. What have you heard about Jonathan Gannon? What's your sense of him as a head coach candidate? One of the cool things that came to mind um, recently was so when they signed Indomitian Sue and um, and they signed Limbo Joseph, you know, we talk about a holistic approach, right? And that signing was the direct, you know, was a direct correlation between some of the defensive linemen being like, dude, this is going to be a lot of work for us <laughs> over the next few weeks. Like, you know, we're getting old and, you know, I really don't feel like, you know, playing whatever it is, 60, 70 snaps a game. Like, could you get someone in here to help? Yeah, and, nose tackle. you know, yeah, yeah. And just like, you know, it, and I'll, you know, get me fresh for the playoffs. Like we started the season 10 and 0 for God's sakes. Can you help us out? And, you know, that's one of those examples where it's like, okay, you guys need Limville Joseph. I'll go get you Limville Joseph, you know, and let's go make that happen. And I think that's, that's one of those examples but i mean schematically we've seen another this is another example of major amounts of diversity uh maximizing talent on uh, on the roster and guys really seem to like him um i don't know if you remember the um the vikings eagles was that a monday night game at the beginning of the season and if you had uh if you had taken even just a sip of beer every time trey aikman said jonathan gannon <laughs> you would have been dead by the end of that uh broadcast uh but yeah no he's um He's he's good. And, you know, I think that was one of those things where the Texans brought him in a year early. One of the cool things that I heard about Jonathan, uh, just rambling a minute, but the back end of that Eagles position coaching staff is phenomenal, like from the linebacker linebacking guys everybody there there's like four or five future defensive coordinators a lot of people said they see on that staff. He's going to bring with him a powerhouse staff, which I think is a big deal. And identifying that talent is a huge mm-hmm. deal. I mean, we've seen that. Obviously, this is a problem that it's a champagne problem that comes to success. But having to revamp and retool your staff when people get hired away, if you have success, is a necessary component of maintaining a winning culture in the NFL. I mean, think about what the Rams have had to do. Think about, you mentioned D'Amico Ryan's replacing Robert Sala. 
Kyle Shanahan's had to replace his entire offensive coaching staff. This is the kind of stuff that's going to happen. So your ability to identify talent, how interested you are in kind of keeping your ear to the ground and being a part of the coaching community becomes really important. So how guys have assembled those staffs on a lower level, I think, can be indicative of what they're going to do when they get the big chair. No doubt. Um, And, you know, what do people... What are people saying about you, right? Because, I mean, and, and yes, there's always going to be spurned lovers in the coaching world, certainly. And that's something that you have to take into account. But what are your interactions like with, with this person? How has he helped you individually? How has he helped make you better? And, you know, these are things with Gannon and really that Eagles staff. I'm telling you, I mean, I think that over the next two years, that place is just going to get completely mined for talent. Like I, I think we're going to see at least two head coaches and possibly another GM come out of there in the next year or two, which I think is going to be really, really interesting. The other thing I like about him, and this is going to be a theme when we talk about a lot of these coaches is that they don't come from one particular place schematically. Again, mm-hmm. being with Zimmer for, for several years and running that kind of um, double a gap, you know, quarters heavy Mike Zimmer system, and then going to Indy where they did a bunch of different sorts of zone coverage, but it was a 4-3 defense and they were playing those even fronts. And when he got the chance to run his own defense, it doesn't look like what they did in Indy at all. It's a lot of the ideas that are borrowed, I guess, let's say, from the way that Brandon Staley and Vic Fangio do business. And Brandon and Jonathan are very good friends. They have been for a very long time. So not just copying and pasting, all right, this is what I did when I was a position coach at X team. Now I'm going to do that as a coordinator kind of coming up with the way that you want to do it based on the way that you think certain trends with throughout the league are happening, all of that kind of stuff. That's another mark in his favor, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, uh, we looked at blitz rates to, you know, if you looked at blitz rates two or three years ago and blitz rates this year, if you didn't see your team markedly alter the way that they run things, unless you're Wink Martindale, who is just never not going to do it. And, you know, he's (laughs) Wink Martindale forever and, you know, everyone loves him. But, you know, if you're not part of that sliding scale. Like I remember talking to Ron Rivera about this and he's like, well, you know, we're, we're 30, 30, 30, you know, we're, you know, 30% pressure 30, you know, and I was like, but it doesn't work that way anymore. You know, yeah. uh, you know, it was the Bengals, you know, made it to a Super Bowl by blitzing 9% of the time. Was that always what, um, their defensive coordinator did in his life? No, uh, you know, but it's the good ones that are, are able to alter that approach and see football economically that I think is, is massive. All right, next one here. Kind of a surprise in that maybe six months ago, no one knew his name, and now he's been requested for, I believe, almost every single opening that there is. Colts, Panthers, Texans, Ben Johnson, the offensive coordinator for the Lions, 36 years old, mathematics and computer science major at UNC, where he was a walk-on quarterback. He's been the Lions offensive coordinator, I don't know, how would you frame it, a year and a half? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, I believe could have or would have gone to MIT, um, had a family member, I think, that went to MIT, like just comes from a brilliant group of people. And I was talking to someone who works with him and they just said, you just wouldn't believe like the the central processing unit in this guy. It's like, we're just going <laughs> to throw a bunch of ideas at you and then it's just going to come out the other end in a big, nice, clean sheet sheet of paper. It says, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to score 40 points. And I just feel like, you know, yes, the Lions did upgrade from a talent perspective. They have a very good offensive line. But again, diversity in scheme is something that we saw a ton of this year. Um, and 
just the way to, and this is another part uh, of coaching that I think is super underrated, is the way that we have seen Jared Goff be handed larger and larger and larger pieces of responsibility over a managed period of time. And that was something that you heard about Brian Dable and Josh Allen going back to Josh Allen's second year, where, you know, someone in Buffalo at the time had told me, watch the way that Josh is just going to kind of mature on pace, on schedule, he's going to take little chunks of the offense into his own time over time. And that's what we saw from Goff this year to the point where we entered this season thinking, how in God's name are they going to get the number one pick next year so they can get someone in there to being like, yeah, Jared Goff, baby, you know, and I, that's that's coaching. Another guy who it's hard to pin down where he comes from. He was in Miami mm-hmm. for a number of years under different staffs. His first year there, Joe Philbin was the head coach, and then he worked under Adam Gase. Joe Philbin, West Coast guy, worked in Green Bay. Adam Gase brought what Ben Johnson, when I talked to him this summer, described as the Peyton Peyton Manning offense with him (laughs) to Miami, which is what it was. So he has different backgrounds in those. He has a little bit of fluency in the Don Coryell kind of digit system. So you talk about diversity on the offense. There isn't one place that he comes from. It's kind of a smattering of ideas based on what is the best solution to this problem with the personnel that I have? And again, I think that's going to be a common theme with some of these offensive coaches. And in my opinion, kind of a heartening trend with some of these guys who are going to get these opportunities. The fact that they have a little bit more diversity of background on the offensive side of the ball. It isn't just a copy and paste thing. I think that's where we should be looking for some of these guys. And I think that he's a very good example of that again. And that's what So that's what scares me a little bit about the massive outside zone trend that we had running the last few years where, okay, it's a great system. It's a phenomenal system. It has largely worked for better or worse since 1995. But if half the league is running it, then the entire league is working on a way to stop it. And so, you know, you you look at someone like Ben and this goes back to something that coaches have been talking about since the, you know, I I don't know, maybe like 2010, 2011, 2012, the prevalence in, uh, you know, PFF, the film overlays that they're able to do and collect data faster than they ever have before. And to see examples of plays that have succeeded during the week to digest information that other and uh, I forget one coach was saying there's even something that's like better and bigger and faster that they're using now some sort of computer program that's catching on but the way that they're able to download information in two and a half minutes they can watch every explosive play from the last six months of football and so there is no more system yeah 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 are you i i was explaining to one coach what game pass is like and he's just like (laughs) Oh God, you poor thing! And I was like, No, it's really it's worse than you think. Let me there's pull up my laptop and show you. Yeah, yeah there's a lot um, of that. They're just like, God, you poor soul. Um, but yeah, so this is the playing field now, and so if you don't have this background of diversity and skills, um, you know that's why Marvin Lewis used to say it all the time. I want guys who like me. I want guys who were at Idaho State. I want guys who had to do weird stuff. You know, I was um. I did a story about a lot of the guys from West Point, uh, the coaching staff, right? And the amount of stuff that you have to be able to figure out in order to make that offense work, and they're transitioning to a spread offense this year, which would be really cool. But the amount of background knowledge that you have to have in every every different conceivable possible scheme 
is is nece- it's not just a bonus now it's a necessity and so if i'm an owner this goes back to what we're talking about way at the top of the show you can't just survive on hiring the hot coordinator anymore because you know and you hate to say it right but outside zone might be dead in the water in two years in in a year and a half i don't know and a lot of these guys are smart enough to be able to counterpunch it kyle certainly is but some aren't you know and and that's going to be a big problem the one question I have, and I don't, I haven't talked to enough people about this. I don't know if you have just kind of the bigger picture leadership aspects of the job, commanding an entire room, commanding the building. Obviously, the processing we know is, is there and the success as a coordinator is already there. But those kind of bigger questions, what sense do you have about that? I mean, just from a, with Ben in particular, what I heard is just the, the energy, the enthusiasm and the approachability, right? Like a lot of times, you know, if you, MIT is a scary word to me, right? I barely got into college. So, um, <laughs> you know, and sometimes you, we've you're seen a lot of shitty head coaches who are rocket scientists. True. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, but I think there's that approachability, that malleability, and just the fact that like, yeah, I love hanging out with this dude. I think that's what I hear coming from that coaching staff, which I think is, is another part to this, right? It's not just some phantom of the opera type character that's in this, uh, in this dark room trying to figure out how Jared Goff can complete passes. This is, I think this is a guy that can, can make this work. And I mean, I, the, the word I got at the beginning of the season, and I'm very careful to put the M word in any coaching, uh, coaching list was McVeighian, not only schematically, but just attitudinally. Right. And so I think that's, that's a big thing. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. 
Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right, another defensive coach who obviously has garnered a lot of interest. D'Amico Ryans has gotten requests from the Texans, from the Broncos already. We know his bona fides. He's 38 years old, was defensive coordinator for the Niners for the past two years. Started his coaching career in 2017 with the Niners. Uh, Kyle Shanahan was the Texans offensive coordinator for two years. So there's that through line and that connection. Uh, what he has done as a defensive coordinator in San Francisco over the last two seasons is unimpeachable. They are absolutely ridiculous. But outside of that on his resume, what about him, his personality, the way that he approaches things is making him an attractive candidate for people? So I think the former player aspect of it is interesting to me because we're seeing people try to capture the best of that um, and possibly in shortcut form, right? And so I think that Jim Mersey obviously um, had his own idea about how he wanted to go about that. Um, and we have saw it fail epically, but I feel like now more than ever, if you're going to, if you're going to create a CEO position, I feel like a player with recent NFL experience, it's, it's a huge check mark because the game now, the information that the players have about the world that they're living in, the sociopolitical environments in the NFL, cynicism can build up so quickly in a locker room. And so to be able to have a guy who has made it through some fairly lean years of NFL football himself, and then to make it through the other side, to have found success in coaching, to have climbed that ladder, I think that that level of understanding is super important. And, you know, you hate to throw around the word players coach because that is something that implies that you're not brilliant schematically. I think D'Amico is both, right? And I think that's something that that goes a long way. And you just don't see defenses, you don't see teams that are just screaming off the ball like San Francisco does uh, on offense and defense. And yeah, some of that is confidence in, in, in what you're calling, but a lot of that is relationships. And I feel like D'Amico is one of those guys that, that fosters those relationships and, and gets guys really fired up. Even beyond being a former player, a former player who was lauded for the ways he interacted with younger sure. teammates and the example that he set. I remember talking to Jordan Hicks last year in Arizona about mentoring the younger linebackers on Arizona's roster. And so when I got to the league, D'Amico Ryans was in his 10th season. I got to watch every single day and have a resource every single day for the exact way to approach my job in the NFL. So beyond being a former player was kind of the platonic ideal of what a linebacker in the NFL looks like and played for about a decade. So yeah. I had so many boxes that I think that he checks. And it's hard to explain to an audience sometimes like, you know, people roll their eyes when they hear this stuff. But like, I can't tell you enough that there are coaches that guys have played for in the last six years who have never made eye contact with some of their players. Like there are players <laughs> who had played on a team for three years and never made eye contact with their head coach. That's a thing. Uh, and so I, you know, it's just one of those things where, it, you know, you need to have that as a basis of understanding when you go into this. And, you know, I think that's just something that's important to mention. Where would you like to see him? Ideally, where, where do you think he would be the best fit with some of the offensive guys? I think it depends on who the quarterback is and what the plan is, you know, where I'm going to put Steichen. It depends, I think, of where the Panthers go at quarterback in an ideal world. But with a guy like D'Amico, with these jobs open, where do you think he makes the most sense? 
I like him in Houston and I like him in Arizona. Um, I think either one of those places, because this is, I like him for a more global rebuild, right? Like this thing that's going to take time, but as long as you are assured and time is a, you know, a, a precious entity in the NFL, but if you are assured that you are going to have some time, I like that idea because I think both of those places are places that need to be resuscitated a little bit on the emotional front. And I feel like that's a place, those are places where he could go and, and make a difference right away. You know, especially Arizona, right? You know, uh, I think, you can find someone to work with Kyler. Kyler's great. You know, you're going to be able to figure that out, but you are going to need far more of a global thing. I mean, Cliff depended so much on his assistant head coach on Vance to do most of the big picture stuff in that building. And so D'Amico could come in and shift that right away and be like, Hey, I'm the CEO. You're coming to me. This is how things work now. And I feel like that's the kind of thing. That's a breath of fresh air that, that you would need. It's interesting. I think Albert Breer mentioned this in something he wrote today, but it's a great point. Very few of these candidates made $48 million playing professional football. So (laughs) I think that he is going to be afforded some patience and some choosiness with these jobs that some of these other guys who are looking at life-changing money as head coaches might not be able to enjoy. So I I think that's something to keep in mind as we go through Mm -hmm. this process. Yeah. And don't be, yeah, like you said, don't be surprised if I mean, some of these bigger names that we're talking about, right? I mean, whether it's Steichen or Gannon or D'Amico, I mean, they could easily be coaching in the Super Bowl. And that, given the timelines of processes, often disqualify you, for better or worse, from an immediate a shot at becoming a head coach. Like, I think we're going to see one or two of these guys that we're raving about come back as a coordinator next year just because, you know, their team was too good, you know, and, and other teams didn't want to wait. Next guy here, Ken Dorsey been requested by the Panthers where he used to work. It was his first job in the NFL. He was their quarterback's coach for about five years. He was the Bills quarterback's coach for two years after that. He's in his first season as Buffalo's offensive coordinator. What have you heard about Ken Dorsey? What puts him on these lists? What do you got for me? Uh, you know, not to judge a book by his cover and, you know, say, oh, that's the guy that slammed all the papers the, during the <laughs> during the game when he was mad. And, you know, I, I, I would say that my counterpoint to that was, wouldn't you want someone who cared so much about their job that they got that upset? And it's not the like you hurt anybody. The best part of you know? that is that when you talk to him, he's like a very calm, Super like nice very guy. kind of mild mannered guy. So the fact Incredibly that he nice. has that side of him, I actually am a little bit encouraged by that, if anything else. That's like, um, I don't know if you saw, someone leaked the audio of Kirby Smart's uh, pregame sp- speech on uh, on Twitter this morning. Um, I don't know who was brave enough to record that on their cell phone and then yeah, tweet about Lord. it, but um, good luck to them. But um, I mean, They had a guy an- who went and got chicken wings during the game yesterday, so I'm pretty fair. sure that Georgia team is feeling itself right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. But Kirby Smart is another guy that looks like... He looks like a starter at like a caddy shack, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden you close the door and you're just like, oh my God. And that's a good thing. That's something that you want from somebody. And again, I mean, I think Ken has a cachet, not only from where he came from collegiately. I mean, remember how legendary and how iconic those Miami teams were? I think that's a big deal for certain people. But I remember meeting with him and talking to him going back to the Super Bowl in 2015 when he was Cam Newton's quarterbacks coach and thinking like, okay, this is someone who just, you know, they're doing so many similar things with a quarterback. And I, 
I think that there will, would need to be more specific things in place for him to succeed from a play calling standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, I think he's got it. I mean, like you and I said, this is a guy that I think has the the cachet, has the passion, has the burn. And, you know, I mean, that's what you need. And to that point, uh, one thing that I heard was kind of interesting was, again, made this point earlier in the show where you throw out people who say, like, I have to hire a guy from X because this is the way we want to do things. I think Buffalo is one of the very few exceptions where I feel like what is happening in that building is a commodity. And when you're able to take that somewhere and work it into your own culture, I I think that's a big deal. And I I do think that that has its own sort of uh, advantages built into I'm 100% it. with you on that in both the front office and the coaching staff, especially mm-hmm. on the offensive side of the ball, because there isn't a homogeneity what they do offensively. What they did in 2019 looks a lot different than what they've done over the last couple of years. And Ken has been a part of that transformation and how intentionally they built that offense through what Josh does well. I mean, the way that they do things there is wild. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like no rules, just vibes with how they operate on that side of the ball. And I think that leads to a certain curiosity that's really interesting to me, you know, the way that they seek out ideas, they can kind of pluck them from anywhere because they don't really come from any one place. I think the problem solving and how many different areas they can seek out answers is really interesting. You know, last year when they went to a lot of the 21 and 12 stuff late in the season after being super spread out, if you Mm -hmm. look at the way that they've approached things this year, you know, they've used a lot more jumbo and heavier personnel in certain situations, the way that they diversified the run game. So how they've tried to seek out answers in a lot of different ways on that side of the ball, I think is conducive to success as an offensive coach. All of that being couched in this in the fact that when you have Josh Allen, he solves a lot of problems for you. So I think that that is worth mentioning. But the background and kind of their process there offensively over the last few years, I found really, really interesting in talking to them about it. I don't know what your take is on this. Um, and I'm all, I'm certainly open to the the inverse of that. But I, I still think Josh Allen is a massive coaching success story. I, I, I do. So I mean, I, I, I really do. And this isn't to take away from what he's turned in, what he's done independently, but Josh's rookie year, going back and watching the film from that to now, uh, you know, that's, that's not just all player growth, right? You know what I mean? And so I do think that there is, there's something to be said about that and stepping into, because what Dable was so good at was, individual matchup scenarios where he's going to call play that he knows for certain you're going to run this route and it's going to trip this guy and it's going to open up this space and we're going to do that. And, you know, I was super worried about Buffalo with Dable leaving and to be able to see how they've continued their success, how they still dial up these incredible matchup plays. It just shows that that mental acuity. And maybe if he's one of these guys that's like, Hey, I'm not calling plays. You think about that if you're an owner, but uh, you know, Ken is certainly another name out there that I think is, is valuable and is, and should get interviews. Next guy who's been requested by three different teams at openings, I believe the Broncos, the Texans and the Colts is a Jero Evero, who was the Broncos defensive coordinator last year, 42 years old. The, I believe of all the guys we're going to talk about the oldest guy who would be a first time <laughs> head coach that's been requested for an interview so far. All the guys that are older than him have already been head coaches in the league. Really interesting background. Started in Tampa with John Gruden as a quality control coach. That's, I believe, where he met Sean McVay and how he eventually ended up on the Rams staff. Was under Vic Fangio in San Francisco for five years during Vic's tenure there. 
was the safeties coach with the Rams for four seasons, was uh, promoted to passing game coordinator in 2021 after Brandon Staley left, and then in one year as the Broncos DC uh, was throwing absolute fireballs for the first 12 games of the year before that team kind of fell apart. That uh, the Titans game where they came out in like a five two front was one of those moments where you start hearing from people around the league like, whoa, baby, like this guy <laughs> knows what like this guy doesn't care. He's not afraid. Um, he's not, you know, and that is just so cool to see. I mean, I remember talking to him when he was a safeties coach and just seeing the growth in the maturation to the point where, I mean, you try you try not to be um you try not to abuse language and throw around words like brilliant and genius but he is someone that like from that point you know when you started asking about him when he was they had that first super bowl against new england right that was the word that you heard this guy is an absolute football genius and so there's a lot of guys trying to run fangio right now there are probably two or three guys who understand on a deep level how to make Fangio work. There's guys who kind of, um, there's guys who can read the sheet music, but there's only a few guys who can play the notes. And I feel like uh, uh, Ejiro is one of those guys who can who can play the notes. Watching him put his spin on it this year w- was so fun because you have the kind of the bones of it where they're playing with a lot of light boxes and you have a lot of too high coverages, all of that. But the pressure packages and the ways that those kind of express themselves, that was different. And the ways that they brought pressure, what I think was his own little stamp on it. And talking to Justin Simmons in the summer about how their version of this defensive system would be different than they won, than the, the one they ran last year, literally under Vic Fangio, he was just telling me that there was kind of more flexibility within certain calls where the umbrellas and the buckets of the defense weren't necessarily as so siloed. It were based on personnel, formation, whatever. A certain call could go from being like a pure zone call to like a match call and just the ways that it was a little bit more flexible within those families. I thought that was really interesting where again, you're taking the general ideas from what the previous staff did that were successful, but kind of putting your own little stamp on what those are going to look like around your players. Yeah. I, re- I just went back and looked at, um, cause I asked someone kind of what their thoughts were that had worked with them for a while. And this goes to, it's, it's this way of, of, of giving people some leeway within the scheme and creating that sort of accountability um, system where, you know, I think Vic is, you know, he's one of these guys that is one of the godfathers of NFL defense, but I think not allowing as much flexibility creates that dividing line. Whereas I think Ajiro did such a good job of breaking that down, giving Pro Bowl players, giving developing cornerbacks some ownership over the system. And that was the word. It was just, you know, creates this accountability within the defense where guys want to play for him because he's going to give them a piece of that. And I I was thinking about this the other day, like we're back in 2010 when I was covering the Jets and they had that stunning win over the New England Patriots and their defense that day was Jim Leonard was on injured reserve and he came up with it. He was like, hey, this is what we need to run. And Jim Leonard is now like one of the better defensive coordinators in all the football world. But this this ability to to give some of it back, um, but then to hold players accountable for those decisions and to have the you know what to be able to put your own put your name on that at the end of the day, I think is huge. But, um, you know, soft spoken, but in in the best possible way. You know, I think that's not one of those guys that. Right in the football world, 
I, I'm sure you've seen it, right? Um, I have a boss that used to say there are risers and climbers, right? There are people who come to the top naturally through hard work, and there are people who kind of kick and claw themselves there. Ajiro is never one of these guys that's going to, you know, be like, ah, look at how important I am. You know, he's one of these guys that you start from the film and you work your way back to the person. And I think that um, this, and this goes to what we were saying before, listen, the Rams hired Sean McVay off a nine and seven mediocre Washington football season. And so, and that's the, that's what you get from that. I think Ajiro is on the, on a defensive scale is, is that kind of guy where like, okay, yes, you're probably afraid to hire someone from the Broncos staff right now. I get it. But the energy that was in that building before it was complicated by certain dynamics, I think was next level. And I remember talking to coaches on that staff at the beginning of the year and them saying, we've never seen anything like it. We've never been happier. We've never been, you know, more excited to come to work. And that's a big deal. I also think that if I were an owner, I wouldn't be looking at him as the Broncos defensive coordinator. I would be looking at him as somebody who was on the Rams staff for four <laughs> years and helped build that defense. I mean, that yeah. why, why not? And yeah. I, I, I do think that there are missteps in trying to say, we're going to poach a team from this organization because they've been successful. I do think the commodity thing with the Bills is similar to how it feels with the Rams, where you're not just taking coaches from that because you're trying to replicate a certain defensive system. The ways that that building operated under McVay and how players felt, all of that kind of stuff, that is worth trying to steal from. And somebody who is fluent in those ideas and has been around that sort of culture, I do think that is worth trying to tap into, at least to have a conversation with the guy. And, I mean, listen, I, this is... This is a hill that I'm willing to die on, which is fine. I've already died on it several times on Twitter. But I mean, the way um, kind of covering Nathaniel Hackett's run to that job, I think the way that that staff was set up, I think the way the ideals behind that staff were something that, you know, 10 years from now, I think will be commonplace in the NFL. I think they will be stolen. I think it's like, you know, we have coaches that are there to help people coach. We have people who are there to ensure that you are learning through this process. And Ajiro and Nathaniel were college roommates, best friends. Um, I think he shares some of those ideas and that shouldn't poison the well. That sh this is a good thing. Uh, you know, just because Russell Wilson's your quarterback doesn't mean you're a bad head coach. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last one here. The guys who have been sought out for interviews, Mike Kafka, the Giants offensive coordinator, 35 years old. Four years with Andy Reid in Kansas City before going to the Giants as their OC. This is another one where the details of it are so fascinating to me because he's one of those guys that Andy Reid guy solely was a Chiefs guy solely. Him going to do this job with the Giants and how different the Giants offense looks and how different they've been successful compared to what the Chiefs are. That, to me, is the most interesting part about him as a candidate. I, I find it – the alarm bells are going off for why that is attractive to me. That's what um, – you know, I talked to a former head coach the other day that said, if I'm looking at one guy and – you know, he said, you know, I don't know him personally, but if I'm an owner and I'm throwing a dart at the board, that's the first place I'm going, because what does that move say about you anyway? Right. And yes, you know, you could have very comfortably, I bet he would have gotten legitimate head coaching interest just as Patrick Mahomes' quarterbacks coach. Probably. I don't think you would have needed to leave, but what you did was you went to a team that, listen, I mean, yes, there is a Daniel Jones hive in the NFL. There are coaches who love Daniel Jones, but I don't know if he was one of those guys. You had this sort of broken 
pieces of this Dave Gettleman fever dream that you have to work with and mold together. And I mean, the the variance in personnel usage, the way that you can trust players to learn all of that stuff, digest all that stuff and be able to run all that stuff. I mean, listen, I'm going to be honest when when I heard that he was leaving to go to the Giants, I was like, oh, man. I don't know about this. Like, and that was a guy that was on our list for a couple of years. And I was like, you know, is this really the, the stepping stone move that you want to make? And I, I think it ended up paying huge dividends. I mean, you know, he can, boy, what he's done with that offense, I think has been phenomenal. Uh, it, it really has. What's so cool to me is that he had to learn the offense. Yeah. A lot of times offensive coordinators are teaching players the system. He had to learn the bones of the system because they brought a lot of those ideas from Buffalo. So Brian Dable brought two assistants with him from the Bills staff. One was Bobby Johnson, the offensive line coach. The other was Shea Tierney, who was the assistant quarterback coach and is now the quarterback coach of the Giants. They essentially taught Mike Kafka the Bills offense early on after he got the job. And so he had to learn it. And then they went back and he taught them a lot of the ideas about the Chiefs offense. And then they kind of came to a middle ground. But he had to learn how to call the Bills version of the offense, because that's not the system that he comes from, which I think is incredibly impressive and speaks to some mental gymnastics that you can do and the flexibility there. And in talking to him, I think one of the reasons he felt so comfortable doing that, he was a player for seven years in the NFL or six years in the NFL. He played for seven teams in six years. So he had to learn all of these different offensive systems and all the different verbiage. And that requires a lot of processing. And a lot of these guys, even if he only coached in one place, the fact that he's had to go through so many different offenses, I think, is one of the reasons he was ready for a challenge like that. And another, I think, important piece of background information, um, you know, if you're not accustomed to talking about or, you know, kind of if you don't know the lifestyle of an NFL head coach, right, is, you know, one coach told me, I can't let my position coaches go anywhere because it takes two years to fully understand what I'm trying to teach from uh, from a whole body standpoint, right? So a lot of these coaches say that, like, my offense takes two years to learn. And so if you're a coordinator coming in and you have to learn a new offense, to call a new offense, to design a new offense, I mean, the fact that you're able to cram all that in your headspace and then you don't know what you're getting out of Saquon Barkley this year. You don't know what you're, you know, you're breaking in rookie tight ends. You know, they're, the receiving core on that team was beyond anonymous. It's a mile so, with a misfit toys. It's ridiculous. It, it it's crazy. And so, if I were anybody out there, I I just think it's one thing that I wanted to write this year that I that I regret not writing about as much was just this uh, this. It doesn't have to be pretty, right? Like who can who is looking back at the Giants and being like, yeah, like you know they didn't have enough awesome plays this year. They're in the playoffs, and I think a lot of us legitimately had them pegged for a top three or four pick this year, right? And based on yeah, their roster talent, absolutely. And that is coaching. That that is a hundred percent coaching. So speaking of guy learning his system that's not his, that had to come in and do that. Raheem Morris had to do that with the Rams. And I want to talk about a couple of guys who have been head coaches, but it's been a while since they've been head coaches. Raheem is the first one. He's 46 years old now, which is crazy because wow. I remember him as a very young head coach. It's been 14 years since he was the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's had a long and winding road since then. I think that his background and his experience 
experiences since then have been really valuable for him. You know, he's coached in different defensive systems, whether it's Jim Hazlitt and that Pittsburgh system when he was with Washington, whether it's the three system that he ran with Dan Quinn in Atlanta and then coaching offense while he was in Atlanta. And then he goes to the Rams last year and adopts their defensive system and calls it as their defensive coordinator because in his words, why would I make everyone else learn something different or I'm one guy learning something different? And they were, again, very good on defense last year and won a championship. This is somebody that I think rightfully is on a bunch of these lists. The Colts have requested him. Both the Colts and Broncos have put in requests for him to, to interview him. I just think of all the candidates, he's one that you line up his entire resume, his background, what you're looking for in a head coach. He would be at the top of a lot of my lists or close to it. Yeah. And so a couple interesting things about Raheem, but I think one thing that we didn't uh, talk about throughout this podcast and is, you know, it's unfortunately still like the first thing that you're going to be asked in head coaching interviews, right? Is who are you bringing with you? Who's coming? And Raheem Morris is one of those guys that's like, he can hold up the Rams org chart and be like, take a pick, whoever you want. You know, know, that is a guy who's going to be able to bring two or three different people who in two or three years are going to be offensive head coaches somewhere else. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Everyone says, I I hate the whole, we can't hire, uh, uh, we have to hire the offensive guy because then the playbook goes out the window. It's, it's such garbage, but you know, I think Raheem has the relationship value to that in some way. I think there's some, some legitimacy to that in certain situations. I think as a general rule, it's less important. And again, it's something that I've backed off of because I I used to be a, a big proponent of that. I think that having having a system and a an organization and a plan in place for multiple years before that happens that's what's really necessary like, that's true like that's Dable getting those three years with the bills and Josh Allen becoming Josh Allen having that guy hired away after the fact I think that's important but that's I, I do tend to agree with you that I think it's less important than it used to be or that I used that's to say it was um he is one of these guys that I feel like has that Rams offensive room right is gonna have whether it's Jake Peets or Zach Robinson or Thomas Brown, you know, they're going to have three or four head coaches over the next half decade, whatever you want to say. And I feel like a lot of those guys would go with him. I feel like a lot of those guys would take that offense and, and run with it. And so I think he has the access. He knows what it's supposed to look like uh, as an offensive play caller and a defensive coordinator. That's just not, you know, that isn't on anybody else's resume out no. here. I mean, that's, you know, and, you know, I heard a couple of years ago, uh, uh, last year, that, you know, he is the ultimate lit- litmus test, right? W- why he is not a head coach right now is sort of mind boggling to me, you know, and I think we're on that dangerous tipping point where, and again, I think if Sean McVay leaves, he's obviously the guy that's going to succeed him in LA. And I think that's important to, um, that's important to take into account too. And I think that they'll still be successful and they'll still work, but um, yeah, I, 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 it blows my mind. And one of the cool things that I'd learned about him really over the past couple of years was how analytically minded he is, how open he is uh, to that stuff. And it used to be such a buzzword, right? Um, but sometimes you don't associate coordinators, coaches who are in that age bracket to being, you know, really aligned with or informed by defensive analytics. And Raheem is one of those guys where some of the information, some of the stuff that he gets and how that informs some of his calls is, is pretty next level. His background and experience 
combined with the level of like humility that he brings to his job, I think is really impressive. Like I mean, talking to him this summer, just how adamant he was. Like we are, we are post the, this is my system. These are my plays football coaching. And I think that that's a really important way to approach it. He seems to do it that way. And then again, you combine that with all the different things he's had his hands in on both sides of the ball and the personality aspects of it, like the, the, the charisma aspects of it, the commanding a room aspects of it. I, I just think that he has a really, really strong case to get one of these jobs. And I think one of the reasons he didn't get one earlier than this is that it's so driven by team success. Like the Falcons weren't good when he was there. They didn't have like, oh, that's the guy who's responsible for this. So we're going to go hire him. So I've, and even this year with the Rams, it wasn't necessarily great. They, you know, they didn't have a lot of success, but I don't think that should deter people because he's not a different candidate now than he was a year ago after they won the Super Bowl. I mean, and this goes back to McVeigh, but there are there are so many people. It's almost like, um, you know, I I don't know what the real world analogy would be, but there are so many people out there that were like, yeah, I was waiting to hire McVeigh. Like I saw him, and you know, I you know, I thought he was brilliant, but just waiting to hire him. Waiting for what? Yeah. I knew he was brilliant, so just hire him. And so it's just one of those things where it you know it, it's it's still my biggest pet peeve is what are you waiting for? You know, the guy is brilliant. Just hire him. All right, one other one here who, again, was a former head coach, been a couple years. Dan Quinn has been requested for by the Broncos. I think that he's going to be another guy who is in demand this coaching cycle. Not a ton that we had on that we have to talk about. Dan Quinn has been a head coach recently. The, the most notable thing to me is what would be different this time around. And, and I think that in talking to him about this, he did a really intentional job about looking back at what went wrong in Atlanta schematically almost as much as anything else. And he told me that he went through like eight years of cutups and like thousands of plays trying to figure out what the weak points of those defenses were and where he had to evolve. And if you look at what they've done in Dallas over the last couple of years, I think it shows a ton of growth from him as a X's and O's schematic coach. And we already know that you know, people like playing for him, the cultural aspects of everything and people play really hard for him you watch the way those dallas teams played and you hear about the teams that the coached in atlanta so i think there are a lot of reasons to think that this time around would be a, a different story for him compared to the end in atlanta i yeah uh so a couple of things about i mean dan i mean the fact that like you know the cowboys are not you know, it's cover one, you know, or whatever the, you know, some of the yeah. stuff they're doing, it's like, okay, cover you know, one and tig- two, <laughs> cover one and two tiger can change his stripes. And I think that is, that goes back to being able to break yourself down and, uh, and, and say like, Hey, you know, my defense doesn't work anymore. This isn't the NFL anymore. Um, I, I think, and I've heard, you know, there are two sides to this coin, certainly with Dan Quinn. I'm on the side that I, I think it's great. I mean, when you walked into that building in Atlanta and if you were there for an interview, you and, and, and you know, possibly this is intentional. Right. And maybe I, just, I got taken for the roller coaster ride, but you feel like you're playing for the Falcons. Like it's just like, you know, you walk through the hallway and there's, you know, certain stuff that you're supposed to slap or are you holding on to the ball? You're doing this, you're doing that. And, you know, you go into his office and you're talking to him and 10 seconds later, he has the PR guy stand up and he's like, well, uh, come over here and tackle me because I'm going to show you how I want to do this. And, you know, for some people, they're like, OK, that's Pete Carroll light. And, you know, I don't need that and I don't want that in my building. But I think with Dan, it's just so genuine. And I think some of the stuff that he had to go through in Atlanta, um, 
you know, there was some complicated, whether it was the post Super Bowl years, whether it was some of the contractual stuff with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones, you know, this was a guy who was, you know, ideally from a management perspective, supposed to be aligned with management and say, yeah, I want all these people in at this price and X and Y. But this was a guy that was on the phone with his players being like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And I feel like Dan is one of those guys that is never going to be a bad hire, right? Like, and you know, it's almost like you looked at Jacksonville last year when they were making a hire and it's like, this guy doesn't have to be good, but he just can't be, he can't be what we had before, right? We can't have an absolute meltdown. And Dan is one of those guys that I I think you come in and the next day of work is going to be better than the day before it. And I think that is a huge thing for a head coach to be able to walk in there and to say, yep, like I got this. I know how this is going to work. Um, but again, it's, it's a taste thing, right? Um, do some players maybe not respond to that? I don't know. I mean, do they, is the Pete Carroll thing, has it run its course? Possibly. But Dan Quinn is one of those guys that can transcend that. If he gets a sense that it's running its course, I feel like he does something else just like he did with his defense. Yeah. I, again, I've for a while with a lot of the success, these play calling head coaches had, whether it was, Shanahan, Sean McVay, Andy Reid, Sean Payton, those guys. Like, I, that's what I want. I, I just think that's the model I would chase. But over the last few years, the success we've seen from guys like Sean McDermott, like Mike Vrabel, guys that really can instill a program and still a way it feels to come to work every single day, he seems like one of those guys. And, and I agree. If, if I needed an organization that just kind of needed to get things back on track and be a, a correction point, I think that he would be a guy that I'd want to talk to very quickly. Two guys who have not been requested yet, but I think probably will be by the end of this. Their team is very good, and I think they're both worthwhile candidates. Luana Rumo and Brian Callahan, both of the coordinators for the Bengals. Lou is an outlier here. We talked about all these young guys and all these young guns getting these interviews and getting these shots. If he does get requested for a couple of these jobs, he's 56 years old. He was a college DBs coach for eight years before coming to the NFL in 2012. And he was with the Dolphins for six seasons. He's been the Bengals defensive coordinator since 2019. Anybody who's listened to this show know this is a pro Lou Anarumo podcast. I think that the way that he schemes up defense, the way that he creates game plans uh, is some of the smartest defensive coaching we've seen in the league over the last couple of years. Personality wise, he, a lot of these guys like these older gruff defensive coaches and he is kind of soft spoken and in that way where you might think he's like that, but he, I think he has a little more softness to him than some of those other guys do, which I appreciate. He, he's a really interesting candidate when you compare him to this group overall. In doing research on him, I got the best one liner from anybody on him, which was that uh, he's Staten Island, but in a good way. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that was, I was like, oh, okay. I, but you know exactly. I mean, I live in the Northeast, but you know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, okay, yes, I get that picture. There's the toughness. There's the from the neighborhood mentality, but there is that heart underneath it that it, and guys just absolutely love playing for him. Uh, and listen, I, I think there is, you talk about in, in, intrinsic value and in coming from other places. During the Super Bowl last year, I think we all got a look at what it was like to be a Bengals head coach and to be reminded of what it's like to be a Bengals head coach because you don't stop when the season's over. You are part of the scouting staff as soon as the season's over. You are teaching stuff and you know, you're teaching the scouts how to find the guys that you want. You're teaching the pro personnel guys how to get the guys in that you want. And I feel like a lot of what's lost 
in uh, the hiring cycle is, you know, I do think that the Bengals, since it is sort of set up more like a, and I mean this in the best possible way, but like a, like a division two or division three college where you're wearing multiple hats is immensely valuable in terms of projecting guys to a CEO role. I think it's huge because you have a hand in every part of the operation there. And he's shown based on his input on free agents and on draft picks that he has a really good eye for identifying and developing talent. They've, they don't have superstar level defensive players on that team for the most part. They have a lot of good players that have been sought out for very specific reasons. Trey flowers comes to mind. They were the only team that claimed Trey flowers last year before he landed on the Bengals. And the reason that they did that is they said, he does this one thing very well. Mm-hmm. We're, he is a tight end stopper, and we're going to use him specifically like that. And they've got a lot of that kind of stuff where they're like, he has a ton of input on why they want these players, and he's able to articulate what roles they're going to be able to play in that defense. And I think you've seen them succeed as a result of it. Brian Callahan is the last one. Brian Callahan, 38 years old, has been the Bengals OC for the last since Zach Taylor got there. So the last four seasons, he was quarterback's coach for three years before that, both with the Lions and the Raiders. I think that what the Bengals have done on offense this year and the flexibility that they've shown, the growth that they've shown, and his role in that has been incredibly impressive. I think what Joe Burrow said really stood out, which is that it's um, it's it's showing a human concern that never borders on micromanagement, right? It's showing a human side that never borders on micromanagement, which is what you tend to do if you have a rookie quarterback that's going to make or break your career. And I think Brian Callahan is one of those guys where, I mean, the players absolutely love him. Uh, he reminds me of, you know, they're the new wave of coaches. The big deal are the meetings, right? How are you approaching meetings? Um, and are players coming out of it? There's a whole science behind, you know, how you break it up with different things, whether it's video clips or comedy bits or whatever you're going to do in order to streamline the knowledge. But he is one of those guys that's on the forefront of that. I feel like, um, what was it? Uh, I think Trenton Irwin, their wide receiver was in a Campbell soup commercial when he was a child and Brian (laughs) Callahan somehow found that Campbell soup commercial and had that in a meeting. And, you know, it's just one of those things where we're talking to a couple of their receivers during the Super Bowl last year, and especially younger guys like Jamar Chase, you know, first year in the league. And it's like, yeah, these, these meetings kick ass. Like I love going to work. And I think that's a big part of it. And just from a very like mad scientist perspective, I'm very curious if he would have his dad work with him because and again, this has nothing to do. Brian Callen is a good coach independent of that, but Bill is the most sought after year after year assistant coach in the NFL. And I think that would be a massive domino if um, if he were able to to lock that up too. And a massive loss for the Browns. And again, I mean, this is, you know, they have a lot of eggs in the Deshaun basket. And if you lose the best offensive line coach in the NFL, what happens there? It's just, uh, it's an interesting thought. All right. That's all we got. I We already went longer than I was planning to, but I'm just going to try to download your brain when we have this conversation. So very much appreciate the time, sir. You do fantastic work on this subject and all subjects. If you guys are not reading the stuff that Connor is doing over at the MMQB, it, it is must read every single day. And it is out every single day, the work that he is doing. So please go check that out if you have not. Really, really appreciate the time, man. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, thanks, Robert. All right, guys. That's all we got for today. Tomorrow, Wednesday, we have two all-pro shows coming your way, offense and defense with me and Nate. 
So please be on the lookout for those. Prospects to Pros will be out in the afternoon. We will have also two wildcard previews coming your way. We're going to do an AFC preview and an NFC preview. It's going to be a lot of podcasting. Please be on the lookout for all of that. In the meantime, really appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.